Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame completed its Junior Day recruiting event this past weekend, and the Irish coaching staff continues to visit recruits across the country during the recruiting contact period. Back on campus, new director of football performance, Lauren Lando, is setting the standard for winter workouts with returning and new players. Our guest today is a returning one, but he always brings us a new perspective, and that's former Notre Dame offensive lineman Bob Morton. Bob, thanks for joining us. Tyler, always good to be here. Good to see you and Eric. Hope you guys have uh, have enjoyed a little bit quieter times since I think the last time we talked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It takes it takes a while. It seemingly takes longer every year for the seasons to wind down. It, it, <laughs> December gets taken over, then part of January gets taken over. But we're 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 in a more normal time of year right now. Um, I I mentioned Lauren Lando and the the winter workouts. I'm curious your perspective. What is the key to taking advantage of of the winter workout time of year from a player perspective? Yeah, I think that um you know the winter workout really is um one of the very few selfish times you can have uh within a football program, and I don't mean that like you're not working out with teammates or anything like that, but. Um, this is the time that you've really got to investigate like what your body needs to take whatever you've done previously and and uh, grow to reach that next level, whatever that next level is for you. And so, um, you know, obviously leaders come to the forefront um, with how they work out in the weight room, with how they do conditioning and agility drills. Um, but uh, I think it's it's one of those everybody's got their own individual plan. Uh, of kind of addressing the growth areas that they have from last year or maybe that have defined their career up to this offseason. And they've kind of counted the cost of what they're willing to do to uh, to make those growth areas, maybe potential areas of strength moving forward. I think of a former teammate and good friend of mine, uh, Ryan Harris. Um, it was really over the course of a single offseason um, that Ryan went from a really good tackle who was um, a little bit weak in the upper body. Uh, Ryan and I were pretty comparable in terms of our strength level. And in, in one off season, Ryan left me behind. I stayed at the, at the level that I thought we'd agreed to. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Ryan had just dedicated himself more than anything else to make sure that he, his upper body strength was not a liability out there on the edge. And uh, it was impressive to see. Uh, obviously he was, somebody I respected a lot played next to you for four years, but that one off season sticks out in my mind is terms of what he did for his body, for his career. So Bob, somebody like Emil Wagner, that's 284 pounds. That's going to be in the thick of a, a positional competition. What's realistic in terms of strength gains and weight good weight gains between now and when he jumps into that battle here in about six weeks yeah over the course of I mean, a month and a half i mean that kind of uh they've been they've been working when they go home too right like you right. know when you have your kind of exit interview that um there's stuff that you have to work on before before spring ball shows up but over the next six weeks i mean you can you can put on you know 10 15 like really good and workable pounds um if you're really committed to the food that you're eating the types of workouts that you're doing um i think the the two conversations that he like Emil wagner and others like him need to have regularly one is with their position coach 
Um, you know, in between my third and fourth year, we went from an offensive line coach in John McDonnell, who liked me playing at around 290 pounds. And uh, when John Latina came in in the offseason, John wanted me to play at 305. And so he didn't just want me to go and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and drink milk before bed. <laughs> he wanted to make sure that the 15 pounds I put on were going to be usable and not just, you know, sitting in my stomach. And so, um, you know, then taking that information to the strength coach, the new strength coach at that time was Ruben Mendoza and figuring out how I was going to distribute that 15 pounds um, in new muscle that I was going to be putting on my body. And just following up on that, you mentioned that, coaching regime change you went from the willingham era to um charlie weiss with ruben mendoza as a new strength coach was there vastly different approaches from those strength coaches and what kind of things did you have to adjust to it for us it was we had a whole, a whole new football coach a whole new strength philosophy we went from you know mickey marati which was um very much um a toughness style of lifting, right? Like he, he really was, um, I, I credit Mickey Marotti for getting me on the field my sophomore redshirt freshman year, because even though I wasn't, you know, fast enough, I was, I was tougher because of the time that I'd spent with him. And when Ruben Mendoza came in, it was going to be heavy, clean and snatch and Olympic style lifting, which was not Mickey Marotti's forte. And so that was a learning curve for all of us. I would suggest that uh, when you're looking to hire a strength coach as a head football coach, you know, Marcus Freeman, um, you're going to have at least a little bit of say in terms of that transition process. You want to hire somebody that you can turn things over to, but you also don't want to have a vastly different process to really shock your team and make the next six weeks a learning curve rather than yeah. a body building six weeks. Bob, the big news in college football Yesterday was Jim Harbaugh finally leaving Michigan, finally being because he's been flirting with the NFL seemingly every offseason, and it's taken a while here, but the Chargers have hired him. Do you, he he is now the technically the third of four coaches um, from the playoff to no longer be coaching other team because Michigan lost their head coach, Alabama, Nick Saban retired, um, and Washington, Kalen DeBoer left Washington for Alabama. What Do you think it said anything about college football that three of the four teams lost their coaches? Um, does it say anything about college football? I mean, it, it just reiterates that we're in a new era, right? I mean, whether it's name, image, and likeness, whether it's the transfer portal, whether it's these coaching carousels that the last several offseason have really been characterized by, uh, it's not the same, you know, era of offseason football that I ever experienced, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but I, I will say this, I'm not smart enough to know what the answer is. Um, but I, I will say that three out of four of your college football playoff teams looking for, you know, new head coaches and that whole timing of everything. And there's just a feeling in my gut that whatever the operating and leadership body of college football, you know, is and will be moving forward, they've really got to figure out some of this timing uh, in terms of uh, transitions and transfers and hiring and things like that. Uh, I understand you need to have the freedom to be able to leave jobs and move jobs and things like that. But when you have a transfer portal that is seemingly always open, uh, I just don't know a lot of 18 to 20 year olds that aren't impulsive themselves. And I take myself back to that time. Um, I, I just, I think that we need to have windows at a certain time when a roster is relatively fixed in the off season. And then a certain time during the season where it's fixed. 
And the more we keep opening these windows for individual teams, I think the less healthy it is for the competitive balance moving forward. Kind of along those lines, Bob, it looks like Michigan is going to stay internal and hire more to be the head coach. And I'm wondering if that's a smart strategy now, given the fact that Alabama's and Washington's rosters were gutted by the you know, that new special transfer portal window for those kids because they lost their head coach. Do you think this is a strategy that maybe 10 years ago wouldn't have been so smart, but maybe is smarter now to get continuity? Yeah, I think I think continuity is is really important, but I think ultimately it's just another metric that you have to weigh when you're when you're moving forward. Because ultimately, whether you have a massive you know roster overhaul in year one, which is not preferable, um, but is one way to go, or you have a roster that degrades over the next three to four years, um, you know I think that the quality of your coach is going to be revealed. Um, I think that we had the perfect situation in Notre Dame when Brian Kelly kind of surprised us and uh, and and walked out the door without enough time for us to tell him to let it hit him on the way out. Um, I think the best coaching candidate that we had was internal. And so our players, our recruits, and, um, and, and a lot of people around the university were very, very excited about that hire. And he's still proving um, himself. But I think there's a lot of ways that he's proven himself to be the right hire uh, a few seasons ago, a couple seasons ago. Um, and so I love the internal idea. But I also think that, you know, whether or not you have that internal candidate on staff. I think, you know, Coach Moore, um, you know, had a third of a season to kind of show his coaching chops and did a pretty good job, uh, you know, at least on the field. And if they think that um, not only can he keep the roster together as constructed, but he can be successful three, four seasons and beyond in the future, um, I would love to see those coaches get opportunities with schools that they've already been at rather than going out and starting the carousel all over again. Bob, uh, I mentioned earlier that Notre Dame hosted some recruits on campus this, week, this past weekend. Um, how many recruiting visits did you make to Notre Dame during your recruiting process? Uh, so I made two. I made one unofficial visit, um, and then I made one official visit after I had uh, – I came out for a, a blue-gold game um, after I had already uh, committed. And so, um, you know, my recruiting process was a little – a little hinky uh, in the fact that Big 12 football was kind of all the rage at the time. I took unofficial visits to all of those schools. I'd committed to Texas A&M. I was in College Station, you know, every other weekend, you know, most of my sophomore year in high school was in Austin, Norman, Oklahoma, just all those places, whether it be for like high school, you know, uh, track meets or powerlifting meets or just going and visiting. Um, and so for me, like I just couldn't shake the dream of coming to Notre Dame and so I had an unofficial visit here um, a couple months later, made the decision that I was going to be here. And then I took my official visit um, and, uh, and, and you know, just kind of had committed to keep the recruiting class together when we had the coaching change. But because you were on so many visits, what did Notre Dame do well in terms of what it did on its visits that made it like it feel different? Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it was Notre Dame, right? Like it, it like, all those other places weren't. And, and I say that because okay. at least then um, Texas had far better strength and conditioning facilities. Um, I think Texas A&M 
had a more amazing in-game like fan like cheering experience than in South Bend. Um, the weather was way better in what I was uh, approving of when I was in Texas high school uh, to continue there. I had an opportunity to start my true freshman year at Texas A&M. Um, uh, and, and so all of the check marks in terms of like on paper, why you would choose a school, all of those favored other schools, except the fact that none of them had a gold helmet in the letterhead that was mailed to me saying, you have an opportunity to come play football for us. And so um, that that's just my take, right? Like I just, it Notre Dame, it was Notre Dame. I, I can't tell you objectively what they did well to recruit me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had, I had, uh, I'll put it this way. The only time I wavered from the time that I gave Greg Madison and Bob Davey, my, uh, commitment to Notre Dame was the week or week and a half that George O'Leary was the coach because I did not like him when I met him at Georgia Tech. So he came in and I had called um, Coach Brown at Texas and I forget the coach at Colorado at the time. They had a great zone blocking scheme there. Um, I had called them because I didn't think I was going to stay at Notre Dame if Coach O'Leary stayed. And he didn't. So, <laughs> so I, I called them back and I redoubled my efforts to to stay committed to Notre Dame, even when we didn't have a coach before Coach Willingham came in. Speaking of the weather, um, when we went down to Florida State to cover that game in 2014 in Tallahassee, one of our coworkers, Al Lessar, tried to verbally commit. <laughs> oh, Al. <laughs> <laughs> so. so. I have two questions back to back about the upcoming offensive line competition. And it feels like all five spots are kind of open, if not wide open. And, and I'm wondering, first of all, are you a fan of Harry Heastan and, and Joe Rudolph's philosophy of, I'm going to take the best five, no matter if all of them were tackles in high school? Or would you rather see somebody that's been a center all their life or a guard all their life be the best guard and the best tackle and the best center kind of thing? Yeah, you know, it it, it feels um, self-serving to say I like the idea of the best five out there because I, I started for four consecutive years at Notre Dame because I was one of the top five. Um, I started at center and then we needed a left guard. Sully came in at center and I moved to left guard. Coach Weiss brought me back to start at center and then Dan Stevenson graduated and Sully came in at center and I went to right guard. Now I will say um, if we all of a sudden needed a right tackle, I don't think they would have put me in there to yeah. kick slide against, you know, these against Matthias Kiwanuka. But I do think that uh, the Boston <laughs> college great that, right. uh, uh, but I do, I do think that um, I, I, I think there is some different body type expectations for your tackles and your interior guards and center. Um, I don't think that that Joe Alt had the perfect body type. Could he have been successful? Sure. But I don't think him putting him at left guard would have been a maximizing of his abilities there. Matter of fact, I don't know many transitions between guard and tackle outside of two that I can think of. Zach Martin did it. He was a, he played tackle for us and then switched to guard. And he did pretty well and is doing pretty well for the Cowboys. And then Josh Lug, a little less successful than than Zach, 
he had, I think, the body type of a tackle, but played more of his snaps inside. And so I think that, you know, when you get into that 6-6 range, I just think you, you need to be looking at 6-3 to 6-4 for just kind of the right lever points to go against a, a down tackle. And then following up on that, if you're Joe Rudolph, where do you even start with those five? Uh, positions do you try to pin down your tackles first do you try to work on the interior first is it all kind of a work in progress as you go through because again to me there's no clear starters I mean you could argue Coogan but I mean Shrouth and and Craig played really well when they came in as injury replacements yeah I do I I, I understand that all these positions are up for grabs I do think there's some kind of, you know, um, there's some leaders at the gate, uh, if you will, some people that played some time towards the end of last year that um, while they didn't do everything perfectly, I think that there was some, I have some confidence in some of the guys that, that finished the year at those positions. That being said, if I were Joe Rudolph, having never coached college offensive line, I think step one for me would be trying to figure out who are my interior linemen who are my tackles and what one or two guys might be a hybrid, right? I mean, you look at, um, uh, uh, I'll use his name again, Ryan Harris, six, four, maybe and a half. I mean, he wasn't a six, 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 seven guy, um, yeah. but he was extremely good with his feet and hands to play tackle. He could have been just as much an all American if he was inside. Um, and so, I think that you find those guys that could be hybrids, but let's get these guys classified the interior outside and who can snap a ball relatively well and consistently or do whatever you need your center to do um, in terms of, you know, calling mics and protection schemes. Uh, and then from there, you're not just looking for your top five, you're looking for your top two tackles. You're looking for your, you know, top three interior guys and you try and see how those positions can can overlap with with that group. So I, I think that he's got a heck of a job in front of him. I'd be shocked if he doesn't have a hidden whiteboard where some of those names are already jotted in. And he's going to be paying attention to how their bodies change, to how they do in some agility work, to how they're working on the things that he told them as the season came to a close, to have an idea with who that starting five is going to be when spring ball shows up in a month and a half. Bob? What were your first impressions of Charles Jagosai's seeing him get his first start at left tackle? What do you think he did well? What, what sort of improvement did you did you see that he still needs to make? Yeah, so I, I uh, he reminded me. Listen, I'm going to call Ryan and tell him that he's got to you know give me uh, buy me some dinner for all the the times <laughs> I'm using his name. I texted Ryan in the game and I was like, I'll tell you what, man, that looks like a young Ryan Harris out on the left side now. You know what I mean? Like it, he looks like he's still kind of growing into his body. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. Like, I just mean like, you know, he, he looks young. Um, his footwork looked good, a little bit raw, um, but he knows how to get after a couple of run plays. He just looked like he wanted to run through somebody, which you love seeing in a tackle. Um, you know, I think there were a couple pressures that, that he gave up, but I'm telling you first, a first start, to have the kind of success that I, I I watched him have throughout the course of that game, um, he's the one for me that I'm most excited to see where he is at the end of spring ball. Because I think you can work on your body in the offseason, really work on your footwork, hand placement, and some drills before you put pads on, 
And then if you can perfect your craft for those 15 or however many practices, we might see a pretty scary technician come out of spring ball. And then all of a sudden we're not asking who's going to be on the left side. And so I think there's a lot of potential there. I don't want to blow smoke. I don't want him to hear this and, and think he's already made it. But um, for, for start number one, that was a that was a pretty successful debut, at least from from my eyes watching it. Bob, uh, Ashton Craig and Pat Coogan were both three star prospects, and and I'm wondering what what happens when a three star becomes a contender to starter or as actually a starter as Pat Coogan and and Ashton were both last year. What ha why did people maybe miss on them? as high school seniors and juniors uh, and then them be able to develop into starters because they're not the only ones. And, and really, I mean, like Nick Martin was really ranked low and ended up being a second round NFL draft choice. So what happens with those misevaluations? Is it just body maturity or is there something else in the process? Yeah, it's funny. I thought that question was going a different way. Like what happens almost on the team when a three, no, listen, once you show up, everybody knows the the when the freshmen show up, we know how many stars everybody has. <laughs> and the first practice when a two star hits you square in the face mask, <laughs> you see so many stars, you don't know which ones belong to whom. Like it just doesn't matter, right? Um, and that's oh just gosh, I'm gonna have to steal that. <laughs> yeah, well, so like the, the ratings don't matter, right? Tom Lemming, love you. Thanks for my, you know, my four and a half stars when I was, you know, playing. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is, like, you know, the first day of practice, who's got the it factor and who doesn't. And the it factor doesn't always play, but the it factor brings something that not everybody does. And so my example with that, former teammate, former colleague at Notre Dame, is now back at his alma mater. Uh, Dan Santucci, I think, was a one or a two-star defensive tackle and ended up being a two-year starter on our offensive line um, and going and making the practice squad for the Bengals for a few years. And what, what did everybody miss about Dan? Well, I would say Dan was mispositioned because in high school, his team needed him to be this great interior lineman, and so he was just a bully of a defensive lineman. But when he got to Notre Dame and they realized that he could handle the footwork, the mental side, the, the you know, the different, you know, play schemes and the dude could actually block someone's tail off. They got him in the right position where he might have been a three or a four star prospect coming out of Chicago if he was on this side of the ball. Some of its body maturity, some of its mental maturity, some of it is the best athletes on any given football team are asked to do more than other athletes. Right. I was asked to be a left tackle, and then I got moved to center because we had a great offensive line. They moved me to defensive end because we played so many wing T teams. Like, I might be the only defensive end who played more than six games in Texas high school football and never came within seven yards of the quarterback. Like, that just wasn't, you know, it, it's just when you're asked to do so much, like, all of that gets on tape, and coaches and 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 people who are putting the ratings out see all of that, and they have to really narrow it down to what would this person do in college. So for me, I was a center who could play interior line. Everything that I did on the offensive side made sense. I did it at a high level against high competition. They threw a lot of extra stars on me. If I played in Massachusetts at a smaller school, let's say I had the same skill set, just for being in Massachusetts, take that four stars to maybe two and a half. <laughs> so there's so much stuff that goes into that um, that that really plays out when people 
get against great competition and you figure out whether somebody has the ability to be great or not. And so if they can get to Notre Dame, man, stars go out the window. Bob, I, I feel like something I've noticed and tried to keep an eye on, the, it seems like there's so much pressure to get ratings and rankings on kids earlier and earlier in the high school process. Um, and particularly with offensive line, it seems like there could be some sophomores that are just very physically developed and they they look very dominant at that age. And maybe by the time they get to college, they're more tapped out with their physical limitations. Um, and there could be some other guys that are are slowly growing into their bodies and um, and have room for development. Is that something that you um, encountered at all during your football career? Yeah, I think you have to realize these people who are putting rankings out, they're just not they're not watching every single high school football game in the country. Right. They're watching what comes their way and they're watching the people that find multiple ways to get film on somebody. I like to talk about this like um I talk about Jalen Smith an awful lot. I uh, was able to work at Athletes with Purpose, which is kind of the extracurricular like football 7 on 7 training that Jalen Smith, Drew Tranquil, um uh, and others uh, kind of came through uh, outside of Fort Wayne. And uh, Jalen Smith was a fantastic linebacker. We all know in high school, uh, Jalen Smith became the number one linebacker in the country for two reasons. One, um, he was a dominant seven on seven football player on a national champion seven on seven team. And anytime those seven on seven competitions happened where there was a lineman challenge going on, he would get in a three point stance. He'd rush against the two best tackles He'd spin move both of them, kill the quarterback, and then just jog back over to seven on seven. And everybody said, this is the best athlete we've seen at this position because he can do all those things. And so Jalen had the ability to get film, not from Bishop Lewis High School in Fort Wayne, but Jalen had the ability to get film from national seven on seven competitions, from national offense, defensive line competitions. He was, he was more out there than anybody else was. Now, I like to think that Jalen accurately was the number one linebacker in the country at the time. But even if he wasn't, if the other five aren't putting that kind of film out and you have a freak of an athlete who knows how to play the game at that level, then that person is going to climb the ranks because they are more visible to all of the Raiders than, than just the people who are looking at game tape. Bob, my last one for you is this. We're all pretty excited about Mike Denbrock being the offensive coordinator I know he was a position coach and not a coordinator when he coached you, but you've observed him in various roles during his second tour of duty at Notre Dame. And I'm wondering, I get this question a lot, so I'm going to throw it to you. Where do you think his time is best spent this spring? Like with just the tight ends, with the quarterbacks, with the offensive line, with everybody? I mean, how would you prioritize your time if you're Mike Denbrock? Um, so I would say this, uh, I, um, I don't think <laughs> this is not disrespectful to the tight ends, right? It's a smaller position room, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it's, there's, it's not like you got 18 guys in that room. Uh, like you might for offensive line, mm -hmm. forget those tight ends, man. They, they're going to be fine. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> especially like, Notre Dame tight ends, right? Yeah, you know, but you're going to have time with them, right? I mean, listen, Mike Denbrock coached Scotty Raritan, Eli's dad. They're going to be good. You know what I mean? Like, they're fine. Um, and, and so I just think that, you know, he's going to invite them over his house, and they're going to develop that individual relationship. But the things that those tight ends need to learn technically right now can be taught 
by him and through a grad assistant as he's really trying to get to know everybody, the most important thing for him is that every potential player on that offense trusts what he is doing. So he is constantly trying to build relationships with the signal caller, with the snapper, with the other linemen, the tight ends, yes, the receivers that are all new, the running backs who were feasting last year. Like As all these changes are happening, he's got to develop a rapport where he can somehow say, my office door is open if you want to be, you know, if you want to talk excitedly or be pissed off or whatever it is, come see me. And these guys actually take him up on it. That's what's most important for him. The tight end relationship just by proximity is going to be great. He's got to find a way to develop a relationship with everybody so that people don't talk about him. They decide to go and talk to him. Well, all right, Bob, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you soon, so thanks again. I don't know what to do with the rest of my afternoon. I feel like <laughs> I usually give you guys like 45 minutes. It's the Denbrock quote-a-minute name that he gave me, so I'm just feeling a little skittish today. Well, you got 18 more minutes to have caffeine so that it won't keep you up at night. <laughs> that's exactly right. My old age. I got, I got to get that caffeine in now. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Before we get to our question segment, I wanted to remind our listeners of our subscription promo for InsideNDSports.com. We're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to the site that will get you access to all of our premium content, the Insider Lounge message board, and you don't have to wait for the next podcast to ask us a question. You can take advantage of this offer by using promo code NDPOD, that's N-D-P-O-D, when you sign up for a subscription on InsideNDSports.com. You can also find a link to the deal in the podcast description or show notes. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one we have is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. On a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being no chance and 10 being a lock, how do you feel about Notre Dame landing the following recruits? Um, and I will, I'll just go one by one and, and I'll say the rating that I gave them. And then we'll see if, uh, um, Eric has any strong disagreements on, on any of these first one, oh, offensive tackle Owen Strebig. I have, uh, him at an eight next that one. Sounds good to me. Next one's defensive end Damian Shanklin with a six. Okay. I would probably be a little bit more sure than that, but not by much. So I'll say seven. All right, a cornerback Dallas Golden, I have at a seven. And I would put him at about a six. I know that he has some other schools he still wants to see, although he feels good about Notre Dame. Next is offensive tackle Jack Lang. I have him at an eight. I'll go with an eight, too. That sounds good. Cornerback Mark Zachary, I have a, as a seven. Okay, that's about the neighborhood, I would think, too. I, I guess if we we're giving these guys 10s, they would be committed. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, in, yeah, to me in recruiting, like, there's no, there's not a lock. Unless unless, unless they've been silently committed and they're planning to do it, planning to announce a couple of days later, um, and then if that's the case, I can't really tell you it's a 10 because that's that sort of gives it away. But um, for the record, I don't I, – I'm not saying that any, that is, is the case for any of these guys, but – um, next one, uh, linebacker Nathaniel Owusu Botang. Uh, I still put him at a three. I think Notre Dame 
was was probably a zero before this past weekend, and so I think a three is a definite improvement. But I, there's still a long way to go if Notre Dame's going to actually sign him. Yeah, that there is a long way to go. Um, I'll give him a four. I think, um, you know, if his decision making process drags into the fall and he sees the young linebackers on this team and the way they play and so forth, that may be helpful. And and if he ever sees the sun in South Bend, that would be helpful. Too. <laughs> uh, next one is cornerback Devin Williams. I have Devin as a five. I don't have a pulse on that, so I will copy off of your paper on that one. All right. Uh, wide receiver Elijah Burris, I put at a six. And I think that's good considering his other offers. That's Plaxico Burris's son. Plaxico played in the NFL and played at Michigan State, and I covered Plaxico. Um, and he kind of profiles as a, a kid and a family that would like Notre Dame. Not always do they go – to the dad's alma mater, a lot of dads like the Notre Dame thing. Uh, but I think as he goes through, you know, his summertime and camp work, he'll probably get some more offers. So he's probably not close, but six sounds good to me. Yeah, that was that would play a role in my six is that he, he's only now starting to get some real offers. And so I think um, it's too early to say, like, what other schools may, like, actually pique his interest if he gets offered. So. Um, I didn't want to go too high on him. Uh, and then lastly was, does C.J. May stick? C.J. May being the defensive end from Alabama committed to Notre Dame. And I, I think Notre Dame's a good spot for now. He continues to show interest in Auburn. Um, but I, I do think, if you ask me right now, that I think he will stick. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think it's pretty typical, especially from kids from that part of the country, to kind of um, – get nostalgic about being in the South and home and closer to familiar things. And I think you have to kind of work through that wall of going so far away. So I think him keeping the door a little bit ajar, I don't think is unhealthy. So I, I think he sticks as well. All right. Our next question is from Lynn K at Carnoustie 18th. How many offers can a school extend per year? Has Notre Dame ever withdrawn an offer? It appears Oregon offers everyone in the 2025 class. Thank you. So really, there's not a limit on offers. There's a limit on how many people can take, or at least there used to be a limit on how many people could take official visits to your school. Uh, I'm not sure if they've amended that number. It used to be 56 in a cycle. Um, but all offers aren't the same. For example... There are guys that are offered, and it's never going to come off the table whether you fill up or not. Uh, they're going to make room for you. There are some guys that, yeah, the offer is there, but if we fill up at your position, the offer is gone. Um, and then there's some offers that are not even convertible or that are not, you can't convert them into a verbal commitment at the time. It's more of a we're interested. We'd like to see more of you maybe at a camp kind of thing. So um, I'm sure if everybody verbally committed to Oregon today, a lot of them would be this, we want to see more of you kind of thing. Has Notre Dame withdrawn? Yeah. When a position filled up for academic reasons and for character issues, they've withdrawn offers. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, 
an offer is very it's very theoretical um it it's basically an invitation to continue talking um and like to the withdrawal part like yeah Notre Dame will move on but it's not there's not like some sort of formal process or like okay you no longer have an offer they don't go back to every kid and tell them they don't have an offer usually the communication just sort of dies out um and if a kid is really like trying to get in touch with the school then they'll say hey they we're, ghost we're, you we're yeah they exactly there uh <laughs> they ghost you see eric's more hip than me um so yeah i mean offers are are just a way to continue the conversation um and uh it's up to the recruit to sort of figure out how serious the offer is um i think it depends on and and I think schools and like Notre Dame treat offers differently. If they think like, hey, this kid, if we offer him, he's going to want to come here. They might not offer him right away because if they don't, if they're not certain they want to take him, they don't want to put themselves in a bad position that they have to tell the kid no. Um, so I think that it, there is a, a process with deciding when and how to offer kids. Um, but uh, yeah, there's no limit. You could send out an offer to everyone in high school if you really wanted to because it just doesn't. There's no like tangible meaning to the offer. Like an offer means something differently for every different recruit in every different school. Um, so it's just a um, a weird part of the process anymore. Like it's not like you're you're the 30 top players in the class you're going to offer. It's your Notre Dame will offer. I don't I haven't been tracking the numbers as of lately, but it's usually somewhere between 100 and 200 and somewhere in the middle there. Of guys per class, I would I would need to look that up to make sure that it hasn't changed significantly. I don't know that it has, but um, there's lots of guys that get offers that that don't that don't end up um, turning into much of anything. And there's some people that are better at getting them than others, and it's not always your star rating. The guy that I remember that was best at getting Twitter followers and mm-hmm. offers was Parker Boudreau, yeah, uh, lineman from Orlando. He had like more than anybody that I've ever seen in terms of offers. And he had a big social media following. And I think he's like a pro wrestler now, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he's been, he's been in the pro wrestling game. He's like in a lower level. And I think he's had some trouble minor leagues, trouble like sticking in and growing at at a rate that I think maybe he would like, but, um, now I'm speaking for him and I have no idea. I haven't talked to Parker Boudreau in a very long time. Um, next question is from LDL go Irish on the insider lounge. Where is the team with respect to health of their tight ends and how many years of eligibility does each player have? I believe Notre Dame needs them all on the roster. Any concern that a healthy tight end leaves for more playing time elsewhere? I, I mean, they could, I, I don't think that there's a, a candidate that jumps out at me right now, given some of your questions about health concerns. So the two that are on one the already comeback, did, right? The one that, I mean, there, yeah. there was a chance that one would and one did. So Holden stays t- took off. Right. So the two that are coming back from injuries, long-term injuries are Kevin Bauman and Mitchell Evans. They each have ACL tears. Bauman's was about two, two and a half months earlier. He got hurt in August during early training camp. And then Evans was, during the season and uh then the other ones should be healthy uh you have Eli Reardon and you have uh Cooper Flanagan Davis Sherwood and then Jack Larson is an early enrollee yeah I think uh um 
a, a good reminder, folks, that we have a scholarship chart on our website that you can check out. Um, if you just go to inside any sports like how you go under football, there's a scholarship chart. Um, so that can keep you clued in. I'll run through those real quickly. Um, there's three seniors in their final year, Mitchell Evans, Davis Sherwood, and Kevin Bauman. One junior with two years left, Eli Raritan. One sophomore with three years left, Cooper Flanagan. And then one true freshman at Jack Larson. Um, I think I think Mitchell Evans should be on track to return for next season. We'll see like how, like where he's at in that process. Um, I mean, we're still talking months out from that recovery. It, you feel bad for Kevin Bauman because every time it seems like every time we we start up a new spring football session or a fall football session around Notre Dame, you go to practice and you see Kevin Bauman with the injured guys. He just is has been perpetually injured. Um, so that's the person I would be the most concerned about not being available to play just because he has a long history of not being available to play. But Eli Raritan certainly is, has come back from his two injuries um, and looks strong at the end of the year. So I think um, Notre Dame's in a good position with its tight ends moving forward. Certainly you would feel the best if Mitchell Evans is ready to go and fully himself by the beginning of the season. And we'll see how, how that recovery pr- proceeds. And I had an interruption there, but did you say Bauman had one or two years? Uh, one, right? He actually has a COVID year. That's the weird part is some of these guys that were in that have COVID years that are older have more years of eligibility than guys that are younger than them. He's he's in a co- he still has a COVID year if he wanted it beyond his redshirt year. Got it. All right. That that's the last class. We won't be talking about COVID years much longer. Alrighty. That next year those guys will have a decision to make about a sixth year, and then they're done unless they're coming from the Citadel as a thirty-year-old. Then they'll be re air going. Sorry. Go ahead. All right. Next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. What is the biggest improvement over twenty twenty three? Do you hope to see from the team in twenty twenty four? Uh, for me, it's pretty simple. An offense that can stand up in big games. The defense certainly did. If Notre Dame's offense does that in 2024, given how good I think the defense will be, Notre Dame's Notre Dame has a very good chance to be a playoff team. Yeah, I, I my thought was just a, a, a passing game that can have more big plays. Can it stretch the field vertically and create better opportunities for wide receivers? I think that is uh, a room for significant improvement that still remains. All right. Next question. Uh, actually three questions from at Patrick shields zero. What are your expectations for Notre Dame? Uh, let's go one by one. What are your expectations for Notre Dame and specifically ND football under Pete Bavacqua? I don't think that Pete's going to stray too far from Jack Swarbrick's model and what he was doing. It was working and those guys seem to, um, work well together and he respects Jack. I'm sure he'll have some individual things, but I mean, he's going to be dealing with a way different athletic world than Jack has been dealing with up until really recently. So he's going to have to adapt to NIL, to changes with the transfer portal, to the amateur model, uh, And at some point, he will be confronted with some of the same questions Jack Swarbrick was regarding Notre Dame's football independence. And I think he will try to protect that football independence and yet be smart enough that if 
that model no longer works, that Notre Dame will have to find a new home and they're going to have to decide wh what would be the best home. Yeah, I think all of that tracks. Um, I, to, my, the first thing that came to me is like, does do the expectation – does the athletic director at Notre Dame change the expectations? I, I don't think so. Like the expect, like you, Notre Dame has the expectations and that person is responsible for trying to get them to meet them. Right. I think that is the way I sort of view the athletic director. Like, I don't think the athletic director is changing Notre Dame football. Um, it, 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 they are, they are now one of the stewards for the program. Um, and so the expectation for the program on the field will be to compete for the playoff every year. Um, and have a chance at winning a national championship. And I think um, Pete Pavacqua will need to show, and I believe he will show, um, a desire to continue to do that. Um, otherwise, you're probably not going to be a very good athletic director for Notre Dame. All right, next question uh, from Patrick Shields was, what is the word on the Hard Knocks-style documentary that has been announced? You know, I haven't really dug into it too much. Notre Dame's had a, a couple of those one during the Tyrone Willingham era that was awful. Uh, I know some Notre Dame fans liked it initially because it felt like an infomercial for what Notre Dame stands for, but I don't think it made a dent in recruiting or changed people's perceptions about Notre Dame. I thought the one that they did with Team 127 with Brian Kelly was pretty interesting, and I do think that it opened some eyes with recruits and gave people a different perspective of the Notre Dame football program. And I enjoyed that one, not just because my voice was in it a few times <laughs> um, on the radio, but uh, I haven't really dug into the details. Maybe Tyler has. No, I don't, I don't know much about it. I, they, I mean, they haven't shared many details and I, I don't, I don't know how much, details there are to be shared i'm like i'm curious like will it be vastly different than the content that fighting irish media already provides will it just be repackaged content like how differently will that be will it be university provided will it just be nbc folks deleting that i don't i don't i don't have the answer to any of that stuff um so um it's just another way to i think it's i think it's more about providing content to peacock uh and then a potential like way to get recruits interested. But um, if it's on it was Peacock, something Brian Kelly definitely pushed for, he thought it would help Notre Dame, but yeah. you're right. I do think this is Peacock driven. All right. Uh, last one from Patrick Shields is what is the over under on alternate jerseys this year? Well, Patrick, you probably know that, um, Jersey questions are not my specialty. I'm going to guess. And over-unders are my specialty. I'm going to guess, <laughs> two that they'll have a green jersey and a green game of some sort at home, and that there will be a special jersey for the Shamrock Series game, which is the one game that hasn't been announced on the schedule um, that I anticipate will be in Yankee Stadium against Army, but we'll see if there is a sharp left turn at the end of that negotiations. Yeah. Um, I would just like, uh, they wore all white this year. Now the, the white jerseys the same, but the white pants were new. So like, I, to me, that's an alternate Jersey. I just don't know how specific people want to be. If you're talking about the Jersey or the pants. So last year they had three. So I would probably set the over under at two and a half. 
um, because I think there will be probably at least two. Um, and then it's up in the air to see if there would be a third. So I would set the over under at two and a half. All right, Mr. Nev at Mr. Irish Red asked, would Notre Dame accept a student right now that entered the transfer portal from Michigan, or would that player have to wait until summer session to transfer? For me, I think it's probably too tough of a turnaround. You're getting to the end of the second week of classes here. Um, And Michigan actually started a few days before Notre Dame did. So I think there's schools that could do it. I think Texas is somebody that um, would be able to take some of those Michigan guys, but I would think most of them would have to wait till spring. And when you figure you want to visit the schools and you want, you have to, you know, send things through admissions and most people weren't anticipating those players being in the portal. So they'll have to do some research. It just doesn't seem like it would work really well. Yeah, the the last date for all class changes for Notre Dame spring semester was January 23rd. Now, would they make exceptions for the football program? I wouldn't totally rule that out. Um, but I at this point, um, I don't I don't see that as as being realistic. The only thing that there may be an exception for would be graduate students. Um I don't know that people totally realize like how sort of different the the process is and how much of a student some of the graduate students actually are or how little of a student they actually are. Um, like a lot of these guys are non-degree seeking graduate students. And that's, I know it might, um, it, it might hurt someone's feelings that it's like, no, Notre Dame is an academic institution. These guys need to be coming here for their graduate degree. Um, but like, I, some guys take that very seriously, but some guys don't. Um, and so maybe there would be a way to make that work because Notre Dame has has done some interesting things with graduate students in terms of the workload that they're required to take and whether or not they're actually going to get a graduate degree from Notre Dame. Yeah, for instance, Sam Hartman didn't have classes at all in the summertime. I remember sitting down with him and I said, well, what classes are you taking? Oh, they let me have the summer off. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, last question we have is from SJB75 on the Insider Lounge. What should Michigan do now that Jim Harbaugh is the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers? Is Sharon Moore the best choice for Michigan football going forward? Well, I would throw him under the bus uh, in terms of all the allegations that are still hanging out there so they can say, we got rid of him. <laughs> Don't penalize us. And I think more given um, – that Michigan would need continuity and he does seem capable. I mean, you don't want Larry Coker. And if you remember, Larry Coker um, took over Miami, won a national championship in his first year. And then the program just went downhill after that. So you want somebody that's both the long and the short-term solution and more seems to have the qualifications people were looking for. His name came up as candidates for a lot of the other jobs. So why not more? Yeah, I more is more. More is more. Um I think it's interesting cuz the I find I think the the Notre Dame Brian Kelly to Marcus Freeman situation was similar in that like the value of continuity um the continuity was valued there. Like Jack Swarbrick thought that was important. I personally don't think you should make a hire based on keeping the current team together because it's going to change so much like a year from now even if everyone stayed on board, 
Like it could drastically change one year from now. So like, why would you make a, so essentially you're making a one year decision. If continuity is what you're really driving for. Like, I know like in reality, you're keeping a recruiting class together. Um, then those guys could be here for four or five years. But um, I think it's a, I think hiring a head coach needs to be a much more long-term decision than keeping the current stats as is. And this Michigan situation is interesting because like we mentioned, Notre Dame, would they even be able to take those guys? Like, how many of these Michigan guys would be able to like just get out of there and go somewhere else? Like, yes, they could enter the portal, but that doesn't mean that they would be transferring out until until the summer. So maybe the new coach could still talk them into to returning. Um, so I think to me, that's not just specific to this situation. I think in general, like I I, I do not buy the idea like that the continuity needs to be valued because I just feel like there are so many avenues to reshape your roster. Um, that you can't sort of restrict yourself on on what will happen in the immediate future. Um, I don't I, totally disagree with you. I think there's a calculus. Like if this had happened in right after the national championship or in December, I think that I would think about opening it up differently than I do now. But but I could see your side of it. I mean, you do want the coach that's going to be the right coach because you look at these programs. I mean, Alabama was in a down cycle before Nick Saban got there. People right. think it just went from Bear Bryant to Nick Saban, and there were some <laughs> dark days in between there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if we're if we're not talking about Shramore, who do you think are like the best guys out there? Who are guys that you think that? I mean, maybe it's maybe we're talking beyond just Michigan here, but I think Michigan is the certain the focus based on the question. Who are guys that you think would be worthy of Michigan going after if they went outside of, uh, of of more? I'll tell you, um, Pete Thamel threw a few guys out there before it became apparent to him and the other people at ESPN that more likely was going to get the job. He threw out the Kansas State coach, the Kansas coach. And Dave Clawson at Wake Forest. And I think Dave Clawson at Wake Forest is interesting because the guy without great resources has hired great assistant coaches time after time. He's recruited above Wake Forest's level and developed above Wake Forest's level. And to me, it would be interesting to see what he would be like as a head coach at a place with admittedly way more pressure but also more resources and supports. That one kind of intrigued me. Yeah, those guys are, are have been good head coaches, but they've done it with different resources. They haven't been like national recruiters, which I think you sort of have to be at Michigan. But like, it, what what sort of track record does Moore have as a recruiter? Um, Michigan hasn't been getting like five star offensive linemen, I don't think. So I don't know. Like, uh, he's been obviously his the offensive line on the field has been great. Um, and that that has what is what mattered most, but um, people around the program would know better, like what his personality is like. I think most people outside of Michigan only know him just from the crying after the Penn State game. Um, uh, what he what he what he was crying for Jim Harbaugh. Um, yeah, like <laughs> like Lance Leopold. I think uh, I think that is that's someone that I think is intriguing to me. Um, I'm always I've I'm a big Kyle Whittingham guy. Like I think he's done a lot with the Utah program that I don't know that it's that easy to do with, um. Uh, so that that was someone that I, I would at least kick the tires on. But if if you're looking outside there, but yeah, I think 
those guys are all interesting choices. I know someone on our message board said Matt Campbell, and I just, I just like, I don't know that Michigan fans would be like, you won the national championship. Now your next coach is Matt Campbell, who's been just. He was a hot name like eight years ago or something. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean... Yeah. And he hasn't gotten any hotter. Like it hasn't, it hasn't increased. Um, and so I, I, Matt Campbell seems like someone that probably should have struck while the iron was hot. And now I don't know what his, what his path, uh, out of Iowa state is. All right. Well, that is it for today's episode of the inside any sports podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review and share our podcast feed with someone who's spending time in the gym this winter. As I mentioned earlier, we're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to InsideNDSports.com, so please take advantage of that with code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D. We are still in our weekly mode here with the podcast and Football Never Sleeps over on YouTube, Um, so make sure you're keeping up with us in both of those places. We will continue to plan to have Football Never Sleeps over on YouTube on Monday night, um, so you can catch us there. Until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. (laughs) 